chapter 11 this morning. We are going to go through 10 and the end of 10 and 11, and, uh, and we are, but we are not going to spend a lot of time of t- in 10 this morning. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 11, and uh, we're going to read through 11 and the tongue twister that it is. Um, just know that I'm not pronouncing everything correctly, and I apologize beforehand. But chapter, chapters, the end of chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12 form somewhat of a transition point in the book of Joshua. Up until this point in the book of Joshua, what we have seen is kind of one battle after another, after another, and after another, um, and one victory, and one victory, and one victory. And it's, it's been big, and it's been exciting, and uh, there's been a lot of miracles happen, and a lot of cool things that happen at the beginning of, in the first 12 chapters of Joshua. Joshua 11 and 12, though, form that transition in that it is the end of those large battles. And what we're going to see starting in chapters 13 and on is more Joshua and God dividing the land and seeing the actual occupation of the land rather than the conquest of the land. There is still a lot for us to learn in those things for sure. But this is kind of the the turning point between conquest and occupation, okay, was what we have in chapter 12 specifically. Chapters 10 and 11 then form kind of the summation of the rest of the campaign. A lot happens in those two chapters. Um, And as we're going to look at here in just a moment, um, it can be a little bit... Um, misleading in terms of the time frame that we're talking about here. And we'll cover that here in just a moment. Um, But this morning, we come to chapters 10 and chapters 11, and we come to the end of the campaign. We come to the end of conquest, so to speak. And so if you would, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to read all of chapter 11 to the best of our ability this morning, understanding that names are very difficult. When Jabin, king of Hazar, Hazar, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madden, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akashpah, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, in Nepoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezrites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, and, in, and with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua with all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Miram and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the land of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and the Mizpoth Miam and eastward as far as the valley of Mezpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. 
And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all of their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except for Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negba, and all the land of Goshen and the low land and, and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its low land from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made, a war, made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the inhabitants of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took, they took all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing in, to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of Anakim, of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashad did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, we're thankful that these events that happened so long ago, they are not mere history but rather there are things that we see and that we can understand here that you desire to apply to our life. Lord, that we may know that phrase, do not fear. That we may know the battle. That we may know the victory if we will just set our sights on you. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us. Lord, that you would change hearts that you would comfort, that you would encourage, that you would challenge, that you would convict. Lord, we pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Chapter 10, as I said just a moment ago, is a little bit of a summary, as is chapter 12. In chapter 10, though, we have the summary of the southern campaign. It's a as, as I've already said, it's a summary of the South. 
of all that happens after the five kings come to Gibeon and Israel defeats there. It's a summary of how they make an excursion. They make a military campaign through the southern part of the promised land and have victory. If you look at chapter 10 verse 29, it says, Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Mekda and to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. And he left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to Jericho. And if you read the rest of chapter 10, what you're going to notice, what you're going to see is just the reoccurrence of that same format. Joshua and Israel marched to this city and then they, did, then they had victory. And then Joshua and Israel uh, did to its king as they had done to a king before that. And that's how you see the end uh, of chapter 10 and this southern military campaign is victory after victory after victory. But as I said, we need to be careful because it's easy for us to read a chapter like chapter 10 and for us to think that all of those things happen very quickly. Whereas if you go over to chapter 11, verse 18, it says, Joshua made war a long time with all of those kings. So the events that happen in chapter, the end of chapter 10 through chapter 11, we need to understand that those things did not happen suddenly. We, get, we would get the impression that maybe they happened quickly in a month or a year. But there are many scholars who look at this passage and they look at the broader frame of what is happening. And there are many who would say that it may have taken up to seven years for all of chapter 10 and chapter 11 to happen. That sets a quite a bit different perspective on what's going on in Joshua. It's not just this blitzkrieg of city after city after city. It is a long, drawn-out campaign. And don't forget, and we're going to highlight this in a moment, don't forget that Joshua was 70 when he started. Okay? All you 70-year-olds... You ready? <laughs> ready to go? <laughs> okay. He was 70 and it took seven years possibly for all of this to happen. So it is a long drawn out thing of faithfulness and obedience to God and faithfulness of God in return. So that's one of the things that we need to see in chapter 10 as we see the summary. There's another thing that I want us to, to grab hold of and if uh, in in these contexts that you would not pick up on unless you are reading a Hebrew Bible, which I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of you are not. There are two words in Joshua and really in the Hebrew Bible that we need to understand because otherwise we can get a little bit confused. The two words are lakad and yarash. Lakad and yarash. There's a difference in these two words. Lakad is what we see in the first part of Joshua. And its direct meaning is to conquer. That we understand. Like we read Joshua, we see him go to battle, defeat Jericho, and they are conquered. They're defeated, right? The problem is, is that we read all of these places that are conquered, and then we go to the second part of Joshua and into Judges, and it's like they're reconquering everything. And we're like, wait a minute, that, that doesn't make sense. I thought they already fought those people. Um, one prime example is that one of the five kings that come and fight, at, fight Israel at Gibeon is the kingdom of Jerusalem. 
And Joshua tells us, the book of Joshua tells us that they defeated all of them and that they defeated Jerusalem. And yet we go all the way to 2 Samuel and we find that the Jebusites are living in Jerusalem and that David has to conquer Jerusalem before it can become his capital. That's like 400, 500 years later. So we ask the question, what happened there? And there's lots of examples of that throughout Joshua and Judges. Of Joshua conquered in the first 12 and, but yet there's a going back and almost like a reconquering, a, another battle that happens. So what, what's the explanation? And it is these two words. Lockheed is to conquer, to overcome. And then in the second part of Joshua and in Judges, you have the word Yarosh is used. That's the word that, the Hebrew word that's being used. It still means to conquer, but it doesn't mean just to conquer and move on. It means to occupy. Okay, so it means that you not only conquer a place, but that you actually move in. Um, another exa- a great example of this in Scripture is Hebron is defeated by Joshua, and then later Caleb is going to walk in there and settle it. Okay, so there's a need to go back. While Joshua breaks the military power of this region and of these different kingdoms, it's going to take Israel and the individual tribes going back in and doing smaller skirmishes to occupy these places, to go back in and fight yet again. But these fights are not as big a deal because Joshua has already broken the major military might of the area. And so it's important for us to understand these two words. Otherwise, we're going to read Joshua, the first part, and then we're going to get to the second part of Joshua and on to Judges, and we're going to go, I I don't understand. I thought this was all already taken care of. Well, it wasn't. There was some work still to be done. So chapter 10, those are two Two parts to chapter 10 that we need to understand before we move on. The majority of what we're going to do today, though, is in chapter 11. Chapter 11 uh, brings us to the northern conquest. Up until this point, we've been in the center of Israel and to the south. And we have not yet, but there is a whole other half of the promised land that hasn't been touched. And so what we see in chapter 11 is... The Israelites drawn into battle for the north. And it's interesting that it's that way. We often think of Israel as being the instigator. But if you've noticed, when in the case of Gibeon, when it's the five kings who come together and they're the ones that, that attack first, they're the ones that form first, Israel is responding to that threat. In the same way, in chapter 11, it's going to be the kingdoms of the north who band together and actually are, in some ways, the aggressor rather than Israel. And so Israel gets drawn to the north because of what happens at the beginning of this chapter. So let's look at a few things that happen here in chapter 11 with the rest of our time together this morning. First, we have, as you can see on the screen, another impossible foe. Really, the, the narrative of chapter 11 is much like the narrative of the rest of Joshua. That we have ourselves another impossible foe. At the beginning, it was Jericho and the great walls of Jericho. And how are we possibly ever going to overcome this? And then God brings down those walls. We see at Ai, not an imposing 
enemy, but rather we see an imposing issue of sin that needs to be dealt with. And God walks them through repentance and renewal. We see at Gibeon the problem of not following God, but then we have the five kings coming together. Rather than fighting one at a time, five of them all join together and form a a mighty force that Israel must overcome. And we know that Joshua was Joshua was worried about these things. We see over and over again, God have to say, don't fear. Don't worry. I've got this. As we come to chapter 11, we have the last major battle in this book. It says, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, the king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and then the list goes on. I'm not going to try that again. But it is this long, extensive list of all of these kings and kingdoms and all of these people groups that are coming together that they may take on Israel as one force. And really, the whole purpose of the first paragraph of chapter 11 is for the reader to understand the great uh, difficulty, the great enemy that has been assembled against Israel. All of these people groups, all of these cities, all of these warriors, to the point that it describes their count as like the sand on the seashore. Can you imagine being a scout of Israel and you know there's been rumors of them gathering together of an, of an enemy alliance and so you are sent to scout and you come up over the hilltop and all you can see is people as far as you can see, tents and people. Now certainly sand on the sea is hyperbole, but still the idea there is they're uncountable. We don't know how many there are, Joshua. We can't count them all. There's too many of them. It's interesting that this phrase, like the sand on the seashore is used, if you have read your Bible very much, you may recognize that term. It's the same term that God gives to Abraham when God promises Abraham descendants as many as the sand on the seashore. Uncountable. As many as the stars are in the heavens. That's the picture. That's what the writer of Joshua wants you to imagine. And so you can know that they have to be worried, but it's not just, it's not just the number of people that they're facing There's one other aspect to this that is concerning. That's that there are horses and chariots. It says in verse 3, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. They had technology that Israel didn't. They had technology that the world had developed and that the world had trusted. And there were certainly two problems to this. One is obvious. One is that there is a great military advantage to having horses and chariots. They're stronger. They're faster. They provide an elevated platform for you to strike down at foot soldiers, which was all Israel had. So there was an obvious military advantage. And so we may ask the question then, what was Israel doing? Well, to understand that, you've got to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God is talking about future kings, but he is giving not only them instruction, but he's giving the country instruction as well. It says in verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17, 
Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. So here in Deuteronomy 17, he's banning the use of the horse on large scale, which would be militarily. He's ban- God is banning the use of the horse, not only for kings, but for Israel. So this is banned technology. And they're facing a people already as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and that people have weapons that Israel doesn't even have access to, that they've been banned from using. No wonder, no wonder God has to say to Joshua, do not fear. Why, we must ask in face of that, why? Why would God ban that? Why would God not want them to have horses and chariots? Again, there's two reasons. One, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he didn't want them relying on Egypt. At this time, if you wanted horses and you wanted chariots, there was one primary seller. The Walmart of horses and chariots was Egypt. If that's what you wanted and you wanted the good stuff, that's where you went. Okay, Walmart may not be the best example. But you get the idea. That's where you went. And God's saying, you're not to rely on those people anymore. I pulled you out of slavery. I don't want you going back. And so he's cutting them off from that temptation. At the second time, God wanted to make it clear that the technology of the day was not what was going to win the day. The technology of the day was not what was going to win the day. What was going to win the day was God. We fall in this trap so, so easy. We look at the world around us. We see the the battle lines being drawn. We see the, the need for us to advance the kingdom of God, and yet we see this vast enemy that seemingly is all around us, and it is easy for us to respond the way they respond. To think that it's, a technology that's going to help us. That if, we, if we're doing things the same way that they are, then we're going to be okay. We have to make our music look like their music. We have to make our speakers look like their speakers. We have to make our buildings look like their buildings. If we just did that, we'd be okay. They're fighting with the media, then we need to fight with the media. We need to have our own news stations. We need to have our own people that can talk loud and argue well. We fight fire with fire rather than trusting in the Lord. We decide that a program is more important than prayer. And we forget that the technology of the day never wins the day. What wins the day is God. It's our reliance upon him and him alone that will win the day, that will cause the victory. And so it's not just Israel that looks at the enemy and its vastness, that looks at the enemy and its great numbers, that looks at the enemy and its better technology and fears. We can do the same today. And yet the call of God is the same. Do not fear them. They will not win. It's the same call to trust. 
And certainly, as we read the rest of Joshua chapter 11, the narrative is not unfamiliar. It's one that at, by this point in the book is rather expected. It's another victory. Another victory. Again, as we've already said multiple times, he says, he starts out, do not fear. By this time tomorrow, they will be slain. I will give them over to you. It's the same thing that he's been saying to Joshua since all the way back in Deuteronomy. Do not fear. I've got you. I've got you. And yet, one of the things that is most remarkable throughout Joshua and really throughout Scripture is that when God tells his people, do not fear, I've got this, the response to do that statement is not, okay then, have fun. The response of God's people is not to step back and just watch God work. Many times, if not most of the time, the response of God's people when God says, do not fear, I've got you, is action. It's action. Faith and trust in God leads to action. I don't know who said it first. I've heard lots of pastors say it before. But they, the, the saying goes like this. Do you want to see what faith looks like? It looks like doing something. Faith looks like doing something. It's the same thing that James tells us, right? James tells us, you want to show me your faith? Well, I'll show you my faith by my actions. You want to show me your faith? You want to say you believe in God? Then show me how it's changing you. Show me what you are doing in faith. Because faith very rarely looks like going and sitting on a couch and waiting. It almost always looks like going and doing something. And when that happens, when God's people hear the command of God to go and have no fear, and their faith leads to action, then the enemy is removed. The enemy is just gone. It says that they went up and came against them in verse 7. They came against them suddenly by the waters of Mimram and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon. The victory, the enemy is removed before them. They have, they hear do not fear. They respond to the call. They place their faith and trust the enemy has not changed. The enemy is still as innumerable as the sand on the sea. The, inter the enemy still has horses and chariots. The enemy has not changed. What has changed is the faith of God's people. And when, and when they take action, they see victory. Not only do they see victory, but the enemy is completely removed. It's interesting here when you go down to verse 13 or sorry, in verse 11, it says, and he, he, Joshua, burned Hazar with fire. And then a little bit later in the passage, it tells us that they did not burn all the cities, but they burned Hazar specifically. Why is that the case? Well, we understand from this passage that Hazar was the ruling city of the land. Think of it as kind of like a county seat. Like it was the one that had influence and control over all the rest. So as long as that town still existed, they were going to be a thorn in the side of Israel. 
They were going to continue to cause problems. They had done so since the beginning of their history, and they would continue to do so unless they were completely wiped out, unless that town was just burnt to the ground. They didn't want to do this normally. You think about it. What was the whole purpose of going to the promised land? It was to live in houses that they did not build, in cities that they did not construct, and to have fields that they did not plant. So they didn't want to destroy much. They wanted to live there. But Hazor, they knew this one, it, it's not doable. It's going to be a problem. I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this, but suffice to say there are times when we have enemies in our life that is not enough just to repent. We have to remove it. It's not enough just to repent and say, I don't want to do that anymore. There are sins in your life and in my life that we must look at and say, it all must be gone or I will keep going right back to it. Jesus says in a little bit of hyperbole himself, says that if your right hand is causing you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. If your right eye is causing you to sin, what should you do? Gouge it out. Because it is better for you to lose a limb than to lose your life. In the same way, brothers and sisters, there are things, there are enemies in our life, there's sin in our life, that it is not enough to say, I don't want to do that anymore. We must remove it. Maybe it means removing a TV show from your life. Maybe it means removing a TV from your life. Try not to watch my, look at my wife right now. Maybe it means removing gasp the internet from your life. Maybe it means make, buying a smaller refrigerator because your enemy is food. And if there's not food there, then it's hard to snack. Maybe it's something greater than that. Whatever it is, it's, it's in your life, and we all have those things, but maybe there's something in your life, there's an enemy in your life that is preventing you from being obedient to God, and the answer is not just simply repentance. The answer is burning it to the ground. Now, I'm not telling you to go burn your house to the ground, by the way, okay? There's some, <laughs> there's some hyperbole here as well. But remove it. Get rid of it. Better for you to do that. Better for you not to have TV. Better for you not to have the internet. Better for you to have a smaller fridge. Better for you to give up something than for you not to follow the Lord and for you to forfeit everything. All right, I told you I wasn't gonna spend very much time on that. The chapter, chapter 11 ends then. It has, we have this great enemy who is defeated because Israel does not simply wait on the Lord, but their faith leads them to action. And the passage ends, though, with a note on Joshua. Up until this point, we've seen Joshua as kind of a, a character in this story, but we have not spent very much time on the man himself. And so just for a moment, just as, as chapter 11 for a moment gives Joshua a little bit of time and a little bit of space, so too I want to do that, and we'll end with this. First, let us notice when it comes to Joshua, how does Joshua live? This great man of God who leads this people well, he is simply obedient. He is simply obedient. It says in verse 9, and Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. You go down a little bit farther in verse 15, it says, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua was just simply obedient. I've 
been getting back into chess these last few weeks, trying to recover some of that skill and some of those mind things. And I've been doing a little bit here, a little bit there. And one of the things that I've noticed is that I try to make chess far too complicated. Just take the king. Just take the king. It's not that complicated. When check is available, take it. Vast majority of the time, it's going to work out well for you. I think sometimes we make Christianity too hard. We want to add all of this stuff to it. We want to add all of these conditions to it. And the reality is God is saying, just take the king. Just hold on to me. It's going to work out. Joshua was just simply obedient. That is the secret to a godly man. It's not anything extravagant. It's not being anyone any better than any other person. It is simply being obedient to what you've been given. Not only was he obedient, but he was persistent. I shared with you earlier that more than likely, this, camp, this military campaign that we read about in Joshua probably lasted many years, maybe even up to seven. And he's got more work to do. We've still got chapters 13 through 24 left as he divvies up the land, as he helps encourage the people to occupy it. He's persistent in his obedience. He's consistent in his obedience. It's not just these, this book where Joshua, Joshua started being obedient a long time ago. He was Moses' right-hand man coming out of Egypt. He was there when Moses sent 12 spies into Egypt. He was one of those 12 spies who came back and said, we can do this, even when the rest of the nation said, nope, not for us. He was obedient for 40 years in the desert as he watched his generation pass away. He was obedient when God called him into leadership. He was obedient in the mission that he'd been given, even to the end of his life. Even when others would be saying, it's time to retire, Joshua. Joshua is saying, no, we're just getting started. He was persistent in his obedience until the end. And not only that, but he was victorious. Because of his simple obedience, because of his consistency and his persistence, he was victorious. Look at me at the last paragraph of chapter 11, and we'll end with this. I love this paragraph. It has become, in the last week, one of my favorite paragraphs in all of Scripture. Verse 21, it says, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim, from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashad did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Why is that such a cool paragraph? Do you know who the Anakim were? The Anakim were the giants. When you go back to Numbers where the spies come back, 
Moses sends 12 spies into Israel, and those 12 spies come back, and they begin to describe the land, and they start off with, hey, the land is great. The land is full of milk and honey. The land is going to be an awesome place to live. There is one major problem. There are giants, and we are like grasshoppers beside them. And they work the whole people of Israel into a frenzy to the point where Israel says, we're not going. And it's Joshua and Caleb alone who stand up and say, I don't care about no giants. God has got this. I don't care about the giants. We can take them. We can do this. That which Israel was so worried about Joshua takes care of in a paragraph. God just takes care of it. It's not that big a deal even. Jericho gets like two chapters. Gibeon gets a chapter. Ai, little bitty Ai, New London gets a chapter. I can say that from from there. None of you make fun of New London. Gets a chapter. Giants that Israel was so concerned about, they get a paragraph. It's a footnote in the history of Israel. Because Joshua was simply obedient. Because he was persistent, God gives him the victory. Brothers and sisters, we face giants. We face things in our life that are overwhelming. But if we will be simply obedient, if we will be persistent in our task, he will give victory. And there is no greater giant than death. There is no greater giant than the grave. But for those that remain faithful to him, he has already won the battle. That is what we look forward to, brothers and sisters. Joshua was no one special. And God had to remind him over and over and over and over again, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. No matter what the world has in front of you, no matter what giants you may face, you have a God that gives victory to those that are faithful to him. I'm going to ask the Praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe there is a giant in your life and you just need to give it to the Lord to say, it's yours. It's yours. Maybe you just need to make a commitment this morning. Lord, I need to be obedient. I know what you've called me to do. I know the battle that you've, you've, you've brought into my life. Lord, help me to be obedient today. Pray that you would make that commitment. Let me pray. Father, we just come before you and I I thank you for those that are gathered here together. I thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ that I see scattered around this room. And Father, I know some of the giants in some of their lives. Others, Lord, I do not. But you know all of them. You know every mountain, you know every obstacle. You know everything that they fear. Father, you know every battle that you have brought them to. Father, I pray that this morning that they would hear your message, that they would hear your word. Do not fear. Trust me. 
And I pray that that trust and that faith, Lord, would lead them to action. Lord, that your name may be glorified. Lord, that they may have victory. And that your kingdom may be here. Father, I pray for anyone that's not here, Lord, that they don't know you. Lord, that they're facing those giants and they're facing those trials on their own, that they would know that they have a God, that there is a God, they have, that there is a Savior who desires to go through those things with them. If they will come to him, if they will trust him, if they will follow him. Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts this morning as well. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can swear to us. It's, a, it's fun when he comes. It's just like seeing a, this toddler come back as a grown man. And, and uh, it's, always, it's always exciting to hear what you have to say. And he always does a great job presenting God's word. Welcome, welcome home. Well, thank you, Alan. I appreciate that. I feel like I'm a little older than a toddler, but probably still a toddler in a lot of years. I know I'm very glad to be here this morning to get the opportunity to come back and to deliver God's Word. This is the first time, I guess second time I've had the opportunity of even being in the new building. So very glad to be with you here this morning. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Joshua chapter 13. We're just going to keep plugging along through the uh, sermon series. Y'all have been going through the book of Joshua as I understand it, as I hope it. Otherwise, this might be a little complicated, but we will... Uh, get going here in just a minute. Before we do hop into chapter 13, I want to give a little bit of background. I haven't had the opportunity to listen to all of Pastor Brian's sermons through uh, the book of Joshua so far. So I want to give a little bit of overview to help give a little bit of context to our passage today. And we are going to read all of it. So there's a lot of verses that we're going to read today. And just as a, a warning... I've read through this passage probably a dozen times, and I've pronounced half the names wrong every time. It's different names. So let that be an encouragement to you as you read your own Bible, that nobody really knows how these things are pronounced. So, uh, but before we get into that, I, I want to give a breakdown of kind of where the book of Joshua has led us so far. So if you've been a part of the series, you've probably heard um, the stories of the Israelites crossing the Jordan River and then the conquering of the land. And our passage today is kind of a turning point in the book. It's a, a part of the book where we move from the conquest of Canaan to the dividing of the land in Canaan. So if you want to think about the book of Joshua like this, Joshua chapters 1 through 5 really concern themselves with entering into the promised land. So chapters 1 through 5 are then entering into the land, right? We see Joshua's commissioned as Moses' successor. We see the spies are sent into the land a second time to make sure that the land is ripe for the picking. Then they cross the Jordan, then a memorial set up, and then the men are all ritually purified so they can enter the land, and then Joshua has his divine encounter with the Lord. So chapters 1 through 5 really deal with everything leading up to them taking the promised land. And then chapters 6 through 12 deal with them actually taking the land, right? The walls of Jericho fell. They were defeated at Ai, and then they took Ai, and then the Gibeonites deceived them, and then they had to defend the Gibeonites. And then we see the north and the south conquered, and then a bunch of kings were conquered. And so there's all in 6 through 12 through this like seven-year time span, we see 
Israel take the promised land. But then our passage today, it turns. So we saw them cross into the Jordan, and then you saw them, or you, we saw them cross the Jordan, and then we saw them conquer the land. And now today, we start a section of the book where they're going to start divvying the land up. So there's going to be lots of names and lots of families and lots of places where this person gets this much and this person gets this much and divide it here at this boundary and all these sorts of things. But chapters 13 through 21 really deal with the dividing of the land. And so that's kind of the occasion of our passage today, beginning the conversation about how the land was divided. And as we get to the passage and we start reading it, I want you to pay close attention to one particular word. If you've got a pen, you might circle it. The version of the Bible I'm reading from is the ESV, and in my version, there's, the word is used over 17 times, and that's the word inheritance. So we're going to read through all of this. So if you're able and willing to stand for um, an extended period of time, stand, and we're going to read God's word, chapter, Joshua chapter 13, verse 1 through chapter 14, verse 5. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains. All of the regions of the Philistines and all of those Geshurites from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines. Those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of Avim. In the south, all the lands of the Canaanites, and Mira that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise. From Baal God, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to Misraphath, Mame, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded to you. Now therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and, the half, and half the tribe of Manasseh. With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites receive their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them from Eror, which is on the, on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland of Mediba as far as Debon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the boundary of the Ammonites, and Gilead, and the region of the Geshurites, and Maakites, and all Mount Hermon, and Bashan to Selechah, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Adri, he alone was left of the remnant of Rephaim. The Moses had struck and driven out, yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites and the Maacites, but Geshur and Makath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord, God of Israel, are their inheritance as he said to him. And Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben, according to their clans. So the territory was from Aror, which is the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is the middle of the valley, and all the tableland by Mediba. With Heshbon and all its cities, there are in the tableland Debon, Bamoth Baal, Beth Baal Meon, and Jahaz, and Kedeth Moth, and Mephath, and Kiriathaim, and Sibmah, and Zareth Shahar, on the, on the hill of the valley, and Beth Peor, and the slopes of Pisgah, and Beth Je. 
Beth Jesh Mith, oh, I was doing so good until right there. Beth Jesh Imoth, that is all the cities of the tableland and all the kingdoms of Sihon, king of the Amorites who reigned in Heshbon, whom Moses defeated with the leaders of Midian, Evi and Rechim and Zer and Hur and Reba, the princes of Sion who lived in the Lamb. Balaam, also the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel among the rest of their slain. And the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their clans with their cities and villages. Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad, according to their clans. Their territory was Jezer and all the cities of Gilead and half the land of the Ammonites, to Aror, which is east of Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramoth Mizpeh and Betanim, and from Mahanaim to the territory of Deber, and in the valley of Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Succoth, and Zephon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon, king of Heshbon, having the Jordan as a boundary to the lower end of the Sea of Chinnereth, eastward beyond the Jordan. This is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. And Moses gave an inheritance to, half, to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh, according to their clans. Their region extended from Mahanaim through all Bashan, the whole kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and all of the towns of Jair, which are in Bashan, 60 cities, and half of Gilead, and Ashtaroth, and Idri, the cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. These were allotted to the people of Mechur, the son of Manasseh, for the half of the people of Mechur, according to their clans." These are the inheritance that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the, east, beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Chapter 14, five more verses. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar, the priest of Joshua, and the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and a half nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in, with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Let's pray. God, we love you and... We trust and believe that your word is your word and it's divinely inspired and that there's deep personal spiritual truth to be gleaned from your pages wherever found. And so today as we dive in to understand and see your truth in this passage where the land that you had given the people of Israel was beginning to be divided, I pray that you would shape us and change us and give us a bit of direction and so we might grow closer to you. Those who don't know you would grow nearer to you. We love you, Lord. These things we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So thank you for bearing with me reading all of those verses. It's a lot, but it's helpful to get an understanding for what's happening. So in the first few uh, verses, well, let me just say this. This passage is long, but there's really three main movements of the passage. In the first seven verses, we see that there's still some land yet to be conquered. So what it says at the beginning is Joshua was old, and God repeats himself, and if he repeats himself, it's something that we all need to know, is Joshua was old. 
He wasn't going to be leading Israel much longer. But most of the land had been conquered. Most of the wars and the battles and all that had happened. The conquest was largely over. But there were still some parts of the land that needed to be conquered. So that's verses 1 through 7. Then verses 8 through 33 deal with an allotment of the land east of the Jordan. And that's important because what we'll see when we kind of get into that passage is that that's a portion that Moses actually allotted before they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. So it's not west of the Jordan, the land flowing with milk and honey that God had promised, but it's land prior to the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. And then verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14 begin the bigger allotment for all of the land in the promised land that the rest of these passages, chapter 14 through chapter 21, deal with allotting the rest of the land west of the Jordan to the people of Israel. So the beginning of the verses, chapter verses 1 through 7, it's all about land yet to be conquered. 8 through 33 deals with east of the Jordan land and all of chapter 14 that we read, verses 1 through 5, deal with land to the west of the Jordan. You following? There's a, lot, there's a lot going on here, but those are the big three movements. So let's first look at movement number one, land that is yet to be conquered. So what I'd said a minute ago, that chapter 13 really starts this new conversation about dividing the land up amongst God's people. We still see that there's some land that's yet to be conquered. And like I'd said, God had said, Joshua, you are old and advanced in years. He's not going to be leading Israel much longer. And so the time now has come for him to not only exercise his right as Israel's leader, but to exercise his authority and say, okay, everybody needs to go to their appropriate places. This is going to be your land. This is going to be your land according to what Moses had said. This is going to be your land and your land according to what God has said. So Moses, or Joshua was to start that distributing, to start that dividing of the land. And what we see at the end of this section, verse 6, so the first seven verses, we see this really interesting phrase that even though there was still land yet to we get the language that's probably familiar to you from this book where God says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. So even though there's land yet to be conquered, God's like, don't even worry about it. I'm going to drive them out. You go ahead and already divide it amongst the people, right? You are going to have victory over them. Go ahead and allot it. And what's really fascinating about this first chapter that we're in, chapter 13, it doesn't begin with the land that we've spent so, you've spent so much time in the book of Joshua looking at. We conquered Jericho, conquered Ai, all these defeat, defeats of all these kings and all these wars that Israel had won. <clears throat> the first part of this deals with something that's taken place years and years and years ago. And we see this language regarding not only that land that began in the east, but also this land in the West, this word inheritance. I told you to make a note of it in your Bible. What does it mean? Generally, when we think of an inheritance, we probably think of something that is left to you that once belonged to someone else, like a family member or a relative, something that you are receiving that has nothing really to do with you. It's not something that you earned. Right? It's something that was set apart for you. And it's different from a gift because it's something that it's not on the occasion of like a birthday or something. It's on the occasion of something completely different. So inheritance is essentially something that is received by an individual at a time specified by the owner. There's a very specific way in which an inheritance is set aside for an individual that's different than any normal 
gift. Oftentimes it's property or valuable possessions or even the right to something like a business. And the same is true in our passage today. Israel had received an inheritance from God. This wasn't God thinking like, I'm going to gift Israel on its 100th birthday, all of the lands of Canaan. No, it wasn't their birthday. So if you might remember way back in Genesis 17, I'm sure that Pastor Brian's talked about this before, but God makes a covenant, a promise with his people Israel. And this is what God says to Abraham way back before the people of Israel were even a thing. He says, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, right? So there's a promise of a people and we're seeing that promise fleshed out in the book of Joshua. So there's a promise of a people Fulfilled through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, who would go on to be the 12 tribes, or the 12 patriarchs, or the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, no longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you a father of a multitude of nations. And we're seeing that multitude in this nation take this promised land. I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and you, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring and after you throughout generations for an everlasting covenant, an eternal covenant, an eternal promise with your people that throughout generations there's going to be this promise that I will fulfill, and that's to be your God, and you and your offspring after you to be your God. So Abraham gets this promise from God that Abraham's going to father many nations, and those many nations are going to have an intimate relationship with God. And then look at the last part of this promise. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, from an eternal or from an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So they see not only is he promising that Abraham's going to have a people, that people's going to have a relationship with God, and that people is going to have a land. And the land promise is very important, and we see it fulfilled in this passage today. I'm imagining if I was a part of God's people, and for years and years and years, I'd heard talk that we were God's people, and that he was going to give us a land, and then it comes time for us to go into the land, and there's people who inhabit the land, and we've got to take the land, we've got to conquer the land. At some point, I'm going to question, like, is this actually ours? Like, is this actually something that's going to be given to us? But what we see here in chapter 13 is the beginning of the land where Israel actually will take it, where it will actually be theirs, and they'll actually start to use it their livestock will actually be in the pasture lands and their crops will actually grow in the fields. It's no longer going to be, we're fighting and waging war to take this land. It's actually ours. And so what we see, even though there's lots of titles and lots of names and lots of divisions and this boundary here and that boundary there, we're beginning to see the fulfillment of God's promise from generations ago. Generations ago. He promised a generational promise to Abraham and his children, and we see it here in real time being fulfilled. I think that this passage and others like it, what gets lost in it, and I know that the title of this sermon series is you're going through Joshua and you're really looking at God's faithfulness, but I, don't, I think it's kind of lost on us because it's like, what, 20 pages, 30 pages in our Bible to think about, okay, yeah, like God kept his promise, but over 400 plus years, 
that long ago, God had made it, maybe even more. God had made this promise to Abraham, you're gonna have a people, they're gonna have a relationship with me, they're gonna have a land, and finally, after all this time, it comes true. I think it's easy to lose the fact, because of all the complicated names, that God's being very faithful to do the things that he says he's gonna do. I think that's one takeaway that we can have from this passage in this long list of boundaries and titles of places is that God is always faithful to do the things that he's gonna do. In fact, if God says he's gonna do something, it can't not come true. And so of course it was gonna come true. And it begins in our passage after this kind of talk about there's still land to be conquered. The dividing of the land begins in the east in verse eight where we see the inheritance east of the Jordan. And what's interesting about this inheritance east of the Jordan is that these were things that Moses promised to two and a half people groups or two and a half tribes before they ever entered the promised land. So back in the book of Numbers, so you've been reading through Joshua, hopefully you're a little bit familiar with the book of Numbers by now, before entering into the promised land, the tribes of Reuben and Gad wanted land east of the Jordan. So you might be familiar with this. I know that this is something that's probably happened in a family of yours or some place adjacent to you and somebody's family that you're close to, that when you talk about inheritances and people getting money and wills being allotted out, things get complicated. Things get complicated when you start talking about money and this child is gonna get this and this other child's not gonna get that. They're gonna get this other thing. It gets messy and Families can be mean to one another. And Israel was no different. Israel was one big family. They all kind of have this tree that stands like lineage and generations and all these things. And so when they were east of the Jordan, and it was about time for them to enter into the promised land, two families were like, you know what, Moses? We actually, we kind of like this land. We, gotta like, we don't want to deal with all that entering into the promised land. This is, keep in mind, this is after they were exiled into the wilderness for 40 years. Like they're about to cross over into the, into the promised land and these two and a half families are like, you know what? We'll just stay. We don't want to deal with all that. We don't want to cross that river. We don't want to go and wage war and do all of those things. And so if you can imagine, Moses was furious. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase this, but he essentially says, that you would send your brothers and sisters, your other tribes, to wage war on your behalf, but you would remain? No, 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 no. You guys were unfaithful for years and God cast you into the wilderness. What do you think would happen if I let you do that? So Moses made a deal with him and says, if you will take up your arms and go before the Lord, go to war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord, and when all of the enemies have been driven out before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession. And what's wild is after Moses confronts them and says, no, 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 you can't just have this land, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. You can't just have this land. You have to go to war with us and conquer it. They do it. They're actually one of the few times we see in the Old Testament they're faithful to do what they are told to do. And what we see in the second movement of this passage is that in verses 8 through, thir- verses eight through 13, deal with the two and a half families as a whole and what their allotments are going to be. Verses 15 through 23 deals specifically with the Reubenites. Verses 24 through 28 deals specifically with the Gadites. And verses 29 through 31, the half-tribe of Manasseh. And so the division of the land had begun. But think about this. It's five and a half years, seven years, something like that, where these two and a half tribes had made it known to Moses 
that they wanted this very particular spot of land. And Moses was like, you can't have it. But if you go to war with us, with your brothers and sisters, you can have it. Probably about year four into this war, I would have been like, I really hope Joshua's a new guy. Did Moses like talk to Joshua about this deal? Like, I don't, like, is this actually going to be fulfilled? And I, I think there was probably a little hesitancy on the part of these two and a half families. But what happens is because Moses was acting like the mouthpiece of God and Joshua after him the same, whenever things came to their culmination and the land was conquered, God was faithful. He was faithful to honest the promise that he made through Moses. But I think it's, I think it's lost a little bit in translation, the, the weightiness and the heaviness of having an inheritance set apart for us and it being like kind of conditioned, like if you go and do this seven-year thing, then you can have it. Imagine like your family owns a business and your father or your grandfather or somebody started this business and one day it's going to be yours. And the father, the grandfather calls you into the office and is like, hey, you know, in seven years, if you work your tail off, this will be yours. But then at like the four-year mark or at the whatever year mark, the, the grandfather passes away and somebody else takes the helm. And it's like, is this actually going to come to fruition? Inheritances are tricky things because, like I said, people are messy and things, other people get kind of greedy and they want a part of this inheritance too. What's going to happen? But Gad and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were very faithful, and God honored it. And so that's the second movement, is this distributing of the land to those two and a half tribes. And then the third movement is verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14, where the inheritance west of the Jordan is beginning to be allotted. And these first five verses really just set the stage for what's going to happen throughout the rest of the book of Joshua. But I want to draw particular attention to what happens throughout, not just uh, the first five verses in chapter 14, but want to draw particular attention to the Levites. When we were reading this, did you catch what was going on with the Levites and the Levites' inheritance? They're mentioned four times, chapter 13, verses 14 and 33, and chapters 14, verses 3 and 4. And all of the verses say about the same, this weird kind of, and to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings of fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to him. That's chapter 13, verse 33, or verse 14. And verse 33 says, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. To the Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Meaning, on the east side of the river, when Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe Manasseh, they were all getting their inheritance, the Levites didn't get any. No inheritance in the east. And then chapter 14 says, to the Levites, he gave no inheritance among them. And no portion was given to the Levites in the land, meaning they don't get any inheritance in the West either. Yeah, they get to dwell in cities we see towards the end of chapter four, or towards the end of verse five in chapter 14. But why? Why do the Levites get left? Like, why are the Levites left out from this kind of inheritance picture? Well, God says to Aaron, one of the, patriarchs of the Levitical tribe. So Levi had many sons and one of them was Aaron. And we see the Levitical priesthood kind of come from Aaron. In Numbers 18, God says, I am your portion and your, and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So we see all of these, and it's kind of hard to tie a nice bow on this, but we see all 
these different ideas from who's going to be inheriting what amongst God's people. All of it's kind of coming to a head in our chapter as the lands begin to get divided out. And for the Levites, their portion wasn't in the east and it wasn't in the west. For the Levites, God was their portion. Because the Levites were charged with having a unique relationship to God. They were the priests among Israel, and they had special responsibilities regarding Israel's worship to the Lord. They had special um, responsibilities at the tent of meeting. We see in the book of Numbers and all these different places, they have additional responsibilities. They're in charge of mediating Israel's worship to God. Their primary inheritance was the presence of God to oversee correct worship. You might remember in Leviticus chapter 10 how important this is. In Leviticus chapter 10, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they decide that like their dad, they're going to go to the temple and make an offering to God, but they make their offering inappropriately, and ultimately it costs them their lives. And so this Levitical kind of priesthood is something that's very important and revered and set apart amongst God's people. So as we kind of, you will get into the rest of the dividing of the land and the rest of chapter 14 and all the way through chapter 21, the Levites are going to have no portion of land, but they are going to be given pasture lands to raise their cattle and they'll be able to dwell in cities, but their primary responsibility will be to be advocates for the people of Israel in their worship of God. So that's kind of what we see in our chapter today. Our passage, our 38 verses dealing with lots of boundaries and kind of structures and who's going to get what, who's going to get what in the east, what are the Reubenites going to get, what are the Gadites going to get, what's the half-tribe Manasseh going to get, what's the rest of Israel going to get, right? And you'll see more of that as you get into the specific allotments throughout the rest of this third kind of chapter or this third section of the book, but what is, where does that leave us today when we think about what, is the, what in the world does this have to do with me today, right? You might be thinking, Colton, that's really neat that you explained all of that. I don't understand it. You talked for a while, but what does that have to do with me? Well, I would say that this is a chief passage in your series that deals with God's faithfulness to fulfill an everlasting promise, you might remember when I read that Genesis passage that God made an everlasting promise with Abraham. Do you know what that word means, everlasting? It means it lasts ever. It doesn't end. It's not something that comes one day and is gone tomorrow. It's an eternal promise. And one thing that I think we often believe when we read our Bibles is that the things in the Old Testament, they're just... They're just different than when we read things in the Old Testament or when we read things in the New Testament. But that's just not necessarily true in every case, right? So when God says he does something eternally, it's not going to change. God has made an eternal promise with his people that is just as true today as it is when the Gadites and the Reubenites and all of these different clans were receiving an inheritance. And that promise is that he's going to have a people and that people are going to have a land. And for Israel, back in the Bible times, they were given a physical land at a certain time in history. But I want to read a passage in the New Testament about this eternal promise. Hebrews 13, 20 says that Jesus is the great shepherd whose blood of the eternal covenant or eternal promise brings peace. So what do you think that means? Moses or God made this eternal promise to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 17. 
And then we see all the way in the future in Hebrews 13 that Jesus is a great shepherd whose blood of the eternal covenant or the eternal promise brings peace. And I would say, just like God promised an eternal covenant to Abraham, we are partakers of an eternal promise as well. And just in the exact same way that Israel had an inheritance set out before them from God in eternity past, so do we. I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says this, In him, that's in Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In the same way that Israel was made a promise, a promise of an inheritance, so were you and I. Our promise is a little bit different, but it's actually not that different. The promise that was given to us in Jesus Christ is an eternal promise for us to be a part of a people and for us to have a land. Did you know that? Our land and our people is a bit different than the conception we see in the Old Testament, but it's actually quite the same. Our people being God's people, the church, and our land being our eternal home with Jesus Forever. These are things that are set apart for us before the foundation of the world and that are true for all who believe in him. So what is, what is an inheritance? What is all this language of boundaries and property? What does that have to do with me? Well, I would say if you put your faith in Jesus, you're a part of a people and you have acquired an inheritance through the Holy Spirit that was yours before the foundation of the world. Do you remember... The Levites, I mentioned them a minute ago, they weren't given an inheritance, that's weird. Remember the Levites? How they were to be priests and have no earthly land inheritance, but that their inheritance was God? Listen to this. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 5 says, Put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So just like how you have received, if you believe in Jesus and are sealed with the Holy Spirit, you receive an inheritance set out before you, before the foundations of the world, in the same way that you receive a people and a land, if you believe in Jesus, we are also a part of a royal priesthood whose inheritance is the presence of the Lord. The New Testament shows that all believers are now a holy priesthood. That means that we can go to God unmitigated. There doesn't have to be somebody between us and God that we go to to pray to. We can go to God, we can go to his presence, and we can offer up what they call spiritual sacrifices, which is just to say that we can pray to God, that we can go to God, and we're inheritors of that eternal promise, that eternal promise, which is God himself. And the cool thing about our eternal promise is that the land that we receive, there's no dividing it amongst God's people. 
It's all belonging to all of us. This land, it, so, so this, this passage in Joshua 13, it's as much a picture of what happened in history as much as it is a picture of what's going to come in the future. For those who are in Jesus, we're going to have a land, we're going to have a people, and we're going to be in the presence of God. So it's a lot of boundary markers and a lot of names and a lot of confusing places and cities. But when we think about it in terms of what Jesus has now accomplished for us and how the eternal promise given to Abraham is also an eternal promise for us, everything changes. So my exhortation to you today would be whenever you keep reading through the book of Joshua to see how this land was distributed and allotted, to have your mind thinking forward to the one day where we will all be in the, president, in the presence of our inheritance. God in the place that he has set apart for us in glory among the people he has in the cacophony of saints singing praises to God forever. So that's my hope for you when you read through the book of Joshua and that you go through the sermon series that you would be overwhelmed not with this history but with your future in Christ Jesus. So if you're here today and you're like this has been really complicated. This has, been a, this has been a lot to kind of stomach. My, my encouragement to you would be simply to say this, that all who believe in Jesus and are sealed by the Spirit have an inheritance set apart for them from eternity past. It's yours if you go to him. And if you've been a part of this family for a long time, I would say live like you belong in that land. Live like you've received that inheritance. Let's pray. God, we love you. This has been a complicated passage to walk through, but I pray that an ounce of it would stick out to your people and to those who are far from you and don't know you, that, that something that was read in your word today would stick in the minds and the souls of those who hear. God, just I pray that you'd be big this morning and that you would make complicated ideas clear that you would um, save those and bring those who um, might not feel like they're a part of your family or belong to your family or have an inheritance, that you would stir their affections for you, that you would make your love for them clear, that they would believe unto you, that you would seal them with the Spirit, and that they would take that inheritance that's theirs. And for those who do know you here, God, we just pray that you would continue to reassure them by the Spirit that the inheritance of eternal life and presence with you forever among your people is theirs and that they would live lives accordingly. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.